And I could go to many of the neighborhoods that we work in to see wonderful buildings that the programs and the organization is failing inside that. So does that make a successful building? How do you know a building is successful if no one's actually in it? This is episode 78. This is The Business of Architecture. If you're paralyzed by a voice in your head, it's a standing still that should be scaring you instead. Go on and do it anyway. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Welcome to the Business of Architecture podcast, helping architects conquer the world. And here's your host, Enoch Sears. Hello, Architect Nation. I am your host, Enoch Sears. On this show, you're going to discover strategies, tips, and secrets for running a fun, flexible, and profitable architecture practice. So thanks for joining us today. It is great to have you here. Now, to get access to training webinars and other insider-only resources, go over to Business of Architecture and join our insiders list. Now, I also wanted to remind you that this week is your last chance to get your tickets for the Business of Architecture Summit. I really don't want you to miss out on this. There's going to be some amazing speakers. I was talking to Jonathan Siegel today of Architect as Developer Fame. He is going to be sharing some stuff that he's never shared before in any presentations, uh, sharing some pretty cool, uh, cool pro formas about developing his own projects. Mark LePage from Entrepreneur Architects is going to be pulling back the curtain on what he went through to create a lean digital practice that spans the continent uh, because he's using a lot of outsourcing tools and other online tools to manage his workflow. Osha Wilson is going to be talking about the financial model that's been working for her firm over the past uh, several years. Uh, she's a startup firm. The list goes on and on. Steve Wintner, former C. OO of Gensler is going to be talking about time management for design professionals. You know, I mean, this thing is packed. Richard Petrie is going to be on talking about the missing step in most architect sales process, what you can do to land more clients more quickly. Uh, Eric Barber is going to be giving his latest insights into internet marketing for architects. So, I mean, there's so much valuable content here. I would hate for you to miss it, whether you're own your own firm right now or you're planning on owning your firm in the future, you got to get the ticket. So go to businessofarchitectursummit.com, grab your ticket now, or you can visit businessofarchitecture.com forward slash conference. Now you can still pick up your tickets at the pre-conference rate. Uh, on the, the 16th, they're going to jump up to uh, just about $500, but you can get a massive discount if you get your tickets within the next couple days before the 16th. Now also as a podcast listener, I want to invite you to take an extra 25% off the charge of your ticket price by using the code SUMMIT2014. That's just for you, my loyal podcast listeners, just because I love you so much. And with that, I also want to give a shout out to two new reviews that came in via iTunes. Got an awesome review here from uh, Steve Ramos from uh, Charleston, South Carolina, the uh, one of the most amazing, incredible cities in the United States. I was just out there a couple weeks ago. Uh, Steve says, I discovered the podcast a few months ago and have really enjoyed working my way through the archive. Although I'm not a residential architect or small firm architect, I find the advice and content very insightful and relevant to my daily practice. There's a wide array of information and it is always presented in a very casual and approachable way. Steve, that's how we roll. Uh, Steve's a commercial mid-sized firm architect from Charleston, South Carolina. 
So Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to leave a review on iTunes. Um, also, we got an awesome review here from Luke Ivers of Luke Ivers Design based out of San Rafael, California, up by my bro, Eric Bobro. He says, Enoch is informative, open-minded, and easy to listen to while architecting. I'm always looking forward to new episodes. Thanks for putting in the time to make these exceptionally wonderful podcasts. No, thank you, Luke, for taking the time to leave a review on iTunes. So if you do want to be world famous, go ahead and please leave me a review on iTunes, and I will give you a shout-out right here on the Business of Architecture. Today's show is underwritten with generous support from BQE Software, the developers of Arky Office. So I just want to thank them for their generous support of the show. For over 10 years, Arky Office has been helping architects run firms that are more flexible, fun, and profitable. So thank you, Arky Office, for empowering business of architecture, and we're glad for all you're doing out there to help architects run a more successful business. Check it out at archyoffice.com. Welcome back, Architect Nation. This is your host, Enoch Bartlett-Sears, and today we're joined by Catherine Darnstadt. She's the founder and principal architect of Latent Design. And Catherine, first of all, welcome to the show. But before we jump into that, yeah. I just want to say that Catherine also teaches uh, at the School of Art Institute. She teaches at Northwestern University. She's on the board of directors for her local AI chapter, as well as the board of directors for the Association of Community Design. So, Maybe Catherine will give us some insight today as to how she's able to jug all of these uh, competing demands for her time. So first of all, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. And, you know, welcome and hello to the architecture community that's listening to this. Thank you. So mm -hmm. tell us, first of all, what drives you to be so heavily involved in your extracurricular activities? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one of the things with those activities is they are inextricably linked to the practice of architecture. Where my firm situates itself is within that social impact design realm, and that bridges a lot of private and public clients. So we're working on the nonprofit side as much as we're working with private clients and corporations. And so because of that, we look at how can we understand both of those sides, both of those kind of disparate sides of the organizations um, from a nonprofit working in the community development has a completely different take on development um, than a private developer that might be working on something. But they both could be developing 100 residential units. They just look at it very differently. And so for us, as part of our ongoing due diligence in a way of how do we create better architecture? Um, we need to understand all, all of these other factors that are actually influencing the built environment more than we do as designers sometimes. And what insights have you gotten from participating mm -hmm. in these various organizations? It's been an incredible understanding of policy, power, and also level of participation. participation. So what we're starting to see is how organizations can be working in parallel and in concert with one another, but um, not necessarily have awareness of parallel initiative, which, you know, could be said for many types of organizations and disciplines, not just architecture. But then also it's, I really understood the power of the democratic process, where it works, where it fails, and how our cities, which cities are the intersection of policy and design. I mean, that's really, truly where architects sit as well. And how we see the factors that shape our cities are truly made by those who participate. And so it's been, it's been wildly um, it, um, 
educational to see how that happens from both a grassroots side, a bottom-up perspective, and more a hierarchical top-down perspective. Okay, and then where do you see the power of democracy failing? And I'm going to follow up and then ask you where you see it succeeding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where I see it failing is its resources. Um, and many of the communities that are projects in, whether it's affordable housing, you know, education centers, community centers, in neighborhoods that are already um, marginalized in one way, shape, or form, are desert in more than one way, food, you know, technology, education, it's, it becomes an access issue. And be, when there's no access to the resources, there's also no access to the time to explain why those resources are needed. Um, and so when we look at our projects that we go on, we really think very hard on what's a, the proper engagement and participation to actually read a, reach a statistically significant portion of the population to make an accurate program for this building. Um, and so I think I might have answered um, both of them at once. I mean, the fail, failings are access. It's access and time. Um, and then where it succeeds is when you have the pure will to go out and make that change. I think, you know, it might be idealistic, but I think there are opportunities and pathways and individuals and organizations that have the will to make those changes to, to have a more inclusive environment at um, a neighborhood or a community or city scale. And then for us as architects, we have that will and that opportunity to make a more inclusive design. Catherine, tell me what you've learned about, you mentioned outreach and being able to reach mm -hmm. and have access to these communities that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Do you have any insights to share about how to get the word out about what's going on in terms of design of a project, uh, you know, um, getting people active and getting them involved? That's a great question. And, and for we work in over half of the Chicago neighborhoods in just the four years that I've had the firm. And so what works in one neighborhood definitely does not work in another neighborhood. And so we have to spend some time doing proper research and de de development and just plain old observation and talking to people like, oh, that's a shocker. Talking to someone actually gets you answers um, of trying to figure out what the power structures are within a neighborhood. The joke is in Chicago that each neighborhood is actually a separate fiefdom, and that's fairly true. So when I look at some of my communities that we work in and our projects, the power structure isn't necessarily the council person or the politicians, it's within the faith-based institutions. And so we have to start to our outreach there. So we go to church picnics, we do that, we start, that's where we talk to people because those are the people that know. And those have more influence on the council people than anyone else. Some other neighborhoods, I can't get in through the door or talk to a community group unless it's been vetted by a council person or someone, someone from that kind of more on the political side. Um, and that's been surprising to see how that all works. And there's, there's obviously nothing that's consistent across the board. Um, but what we've learned from that is we have to take our first step. And for us, we lead with our human side first, and we just happen to have a skill set of architects, we don't come in as architects. And we come in and we look for partnerships right off the bat. Partnerships, whether it's a local nonprofit or maybe it's a planning organization, maybe it's an academic institution. We've worked with sociologists at schools. We've worked with nonprofit um, community design organizations. We've worked with religious institutions. We've worked with high schools and youth-based organizations and arts organizations. So it really starts to craft how we see a very authentic and exciting project for us as well is when we get to make these collaborations that are outside what 
what our traditional, you know, consultant and subconsultant team might be. Okay. So when you say you don't come in as architects, tell me how that's different from the way that generally architects may approach a project. We come, and that's a great question, but it's a, I think it's an ongoing dialogue. Is our process really any different than what planners do, or is our process really any different than what an architect does who, who practices a good due diligence? Um, I, when I say we come in with the human side first, because a majority of our projects are in Chicago, I and my team, we are citizens in and designers of Chicago and designers of this city, so we have a nuanced understanding of how the city works and can and start to create that common ground, not necessarily around the projects, but the project and the physical product of a building, but what are the overarching goals of what you want to achieve within this neighborhood? And that could be, that might be an equity goal, that might be a safe space goal, it might be something else that a renovation of a historic building on first blush doesn't seem like it can achieve. So what are those impacts beyond that footprint of the building? What are the impacts of that building and the ecosystem of that neighborhood? So how does that building fit within the ecosystem of a neighborhood? Because we spend so much time just worried about the complexities of a building, which are difficult, you know, everyone knows that. But we have to look at what how that building fits into the larger system around it. And that's why we start to ask what are those systemic questions and systemic issues and how, do the, how can the, we backtrack and fit this building into it? When you go in from the human side and you want to engage and get this feedback, get community mm-hmm. involvement, can you yeah. give an example of, of how, like a specific example of how that played out in a particular project, the sort mm-hmm. of the steps you went through to, to get this engagement? Right. No, that's a great, great, great example. One of the projects and one of my favorite ones, um, just because it's had so many twists and turns over the past couple of years that we've worked on it, is one of our first clients came to us um, with a project down on the far south side of Chicago. So take the uh, take our public transit as far as you can go and then keep going and you're still in Chicago. And that's kind of where their project was. And they came to us and asked for a new construction community center. And so they wanted everything from it, from you know a swimming pool, a fireplace, a library, everything around that. And they were a non-for-profit that worked with young women, 12 through 18, predominantly African-American, to provide after-school programming. And what we did in the course of developing the program for that building, because obviously the budget, timeline, you can't have everything in the kitchen sink, so we had to narrow that down. But what we also saw was an opportunity to use the building as a teaching tool and the process of design as a teaching tool and made a STEM-based after-school program for them around architecture, engineering, and construction. And so with that, we taught the girls um, some core skills. Um, We had them go out and start to do community engagement activities. They built a park in it one year. They built, um, they transformed a, a classroom at a local public school. And those skills became an award winning STEM program for the organization, which in turn gave them more latitude and leverage and exposure with funders, which in turn then has changed the dynamic and the, the development schedule for that particular building. And right now they are in a negotiated sale process to buy a historic building that would anchor the north end of what will be the Pullman National Park in Chicago. So, I mean, that's a whole entire process. If we went in and built a community center, they would have just had it. You know, they would have had a great space. But we had to look at the organizational and operational structure of our client to say, hey, you're going to be shifting from being an organization that just provides after-school programming 
to really be in a community developer. You're going to be putting millions of dollars into a neighborhood and you put millions of dollars of your intellectual capital and your emotional capital into your programs. Well, now you're just putting capital, <laughs> you know, so how do you change as an organization to be a community developer now? And that helps shift them. That put them on a whole entire strategic rework. Um, and that's kind of our goal as an architecture firm is to make that building better. You have to make the programs better. You have to make the organization better because otherwise I can make a great building and it's going to fail. And I could go to many of the neighborhoods that we work in to see wonderful buildings that the programs and the organization is failing inside that. So does that make a successful building? How do you know a building is successful if no one's actually in it? It's a good question. And if anyone mm -hmm. has any answers, feel free to leave them in the comments. <laughs> hey, Architect Nation, it is great to have you listening in today. I want to remind you that this episode of Business of Architecture is sponsored by BQE Software, the developers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice has been powering architecture firms for over 10 years and helping them to be more productive and profitable, which empowers architects to do what you like to do and what you got in this business for in the first place. Create great architecture and spaces. Go check it out at archeoffice.com. Now back to our show. Catherine, when, when you're going through this process, who are you talking to to motivate? Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's a, a large deal of, uh, of motivation and inspiring of other people to help them catch a larger vision. Because mm -hmm. things like this, the example you just gave of the project on the south side of Chicago, they don't happen by sitting back and uh, taking orders, so to speak, from the client. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of ingenuity, a lot of prodding and creativity from your side. Can you talk me through that process a little bit? Maybe give me some insight of how you approach it and why you don't just say, okay, you want to, you want a community center? Boom. Let's do that. And then that's where we're going to end. We're just going to give you the building. What, what motivates yeah. you to do that? And then how do you help others catch that vision? Um, I think what motivates us with that is, again, we're really based in Chicago. So I see Chicago as my lab. I look at this urban scale in every single project that we have. And over the four years of the firm, we've had projects that um, are symbiotic with one another. Then the clients don't know each other. And so we feel it's our kind of um, best practice to maybe introduce them. Maybe a non-for-profit in one neighborhood should meet a for-profit organization in another because they somewhat have similar missions and could skill share. That's kind of above and beyond our scope of work that we just feel we want to do to make our city better. And it all falls back to being the citizen in it. You know, I can be an architect and only look at the city just through an architect lens and my professional lens. But in the end, I still live here. You know, so I want to, the goal of my personal goal is I would love to be able to just go to any neighborhood in the city and be able to have a great meal, have a, you know, everyone have affordable housing and, you know, have friends there. And I know, I think that it's, it sounds very easy to say, but that's the structure that we're after. Okay. You know, so if I have a, a 50 year career in this field, you know, or whatever it might be, I'm 32. So I at least have 20 years in this field, if not 30, 40, 50. Um, and I don't see like I'm going anywhere in the city. So, <laughs> you know, I might as well start, you know, get going and transforming it. I don't think there's necessarily a lot of prodding with our clients. I don't think we're not strong arming anyone. And I know, and what we do is we're listening and we're listening and we're hearing and then we're interpreting back. It's like, is this what you're after? Is this the goal? Is this the mission? To have mission-based design conversations are easier with nonprofits or community organizations because they're typically mission-based as well. So we could have these broader conversations. Is it, is it as easy to have the same conversation with one of our tech companies that we're doing a corporate interiors for? Not necessarily, but 
sell our clients now on the private sector have been coming and they're coming to us because they have strong corporate social responsibility programs and they have strong community engagement programs. So they're coming to us and it's usually their directors of social impact or similar that are recommending our firm because they see that tie and that relationship to um, our engagement with community geographic or neighborhood based community and their community within an industry. And so that's an interesting shift that we're starting to see. And we're seeing that also with the younger companies that are coming out that are millennial driven or, um, um, yeah, millennial millionaires, which make me question my own <laughs> discipline. <laughs> you know, I got into the wrong field. Well, you're not clearly. a millionaire yet, Catherine? I'm not. Yeah. What's going on? Um, but it's very interesting to see those businesses really practice, um, how they purchase and develop their space and really do have these um, shared values that extend beyond the blurb on a website or on paper that they're really starting to manifest it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know we're, we jest about not being millionaires, but you know, I know at the heart of it, you're doing what you do because you love it. You're passionate yeah. about it yeah. and you've chosen to focus on community design to serve underprivileged communities as best you can. My question for you, Catherine, is what what gets you up in the morning to do this? Why community-based design? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's really a difference between community-based design and any other type of architecture. I mean, we're dealing with the same types of structures. I do say we work within the social impact realm um, when I talk about our work, but we have every typology but healthcare in our portfolio in four years. And so when I think of community-based design, I started thinking about it as geographic neighborhood-based, but I really think about it as it's human-based. So it really falls under human-centered design, and it falls more under the process we use to define the context around a project before we ever get into designing the content. And designing the content, that's all architecture. It's what we do on the front end and the back end of our particular set of services that I think sets us apart. And it's dealing with engagement and measurement, and it's dealing with stewardship also at the back end. And so what drives you? What what drives you to do the human-centered design? I don't see any other way to do it. I mean, I, I, there, I can't necessarily expound on why this particular methodology is better. To me, it feels right. To me, it feels natural. And this is how I frankly was taught in school on what architecture can do. So maybe by having a firm where I started my own firm after only about four or five years in the industry, maybe I wasn't jaded by people telling me, no, that you can't do this or the client isn't going to expect it. So I just do what feels right and what I feel is authentic and acceptable for the project and to make a better product for the client and make a better space because I feel it's a social driver as much as a spatial driver. And this is the process that we go about it. Excellent. Thank you. Catherine, you, you recently participated in the, the business plan competition. I did. Which is yeah. uh, where we met briefly mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. reception. And you were awarded the second place out of all mm -hmm. the, the people that um, competed in that. Can you mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about, uh, first of all, what inspired you to submit a business plan to the competition and then the things you learned from going through that process? Yeah. Um, what inspired me to submit was I didn't have a business plan before then. So I figured after three years, um, it was probably about time. Um, I'm in the fourth year of having latent design. And so the first three years were just um, 
I don't know, haphazard as, at best. It, there was success, there were buildings, there were great projects, but there was no plan. There was no system, there was no growth. And so at the end of year three, I was starting to see, while I've been able to make something that I started really as a plan B, I've been able to make that into my own dream job. And now I'm in the process of having the potential to make it other people's dream jobs as we bring on staff. I probably should plan for what that next three-year chunk was. And it was fortuitous that I just moved into a storefront space that had a three-year lease. I was like, great, let me figure out how I could either grow into this space or grow out of this space. And the business plan competition kind of popped up at the same time. I go, great, now here's something that gives me some structure. And so we internally, myself and one other person in the firm, just worked diligently on developing the plan. Um, and whether we won or not, it was so useful for us. So we went back. We analyzed three years worth of projects. We saw who they were coming from, who we were losing them to, what happened, going back and talking to the clients. Um, that was informative for us and that helped to shape some of our future goals within the, that we put down in the business plan. Can you tell me about some of those insights that you learned from talking to past clients? Right. Yeah. The, I, I absolutely will. Um, we found that the two, okay, so I'll, First insight was um, who we lost projects to, okay? So we had maybe about 70, you know, we have about 37 pro projects completed at various scales at the end of, you know, year three that we analyzed until we had, you know, about 70 proposals that were sent out at the same time. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of work um, that goes out there. And it's kind of depressing when you look at like, oh, my gosh, I remember that project. We didn't win that. And so first thing I want to know is get the, get, find out who we were losing them to and why. The two biggest areas where we lost projects to, we lost to general contractors who were offering design build services. Um, and then we lost actually to larger architecture firms who had pro bono missions or social impact missions within their firm. So, for example, I might have a project that I would be getting a smaller fee for, um, but then we would also lose to a larger firm that would say, well, we'll just do the whole entire thing pro bono. So I might be able to get a $15,000, $20,000 fee out of a project that should really cost maybe 30 or 40, but because we believe in the mission, we also, you know, have that kind of engagement and we understand the client, you know, we're willing to work with their budget, but no client's stupid. If another a bigger firm is going to come in and be like, well, we'll charge you nothing for it. They're going to go with that. I'm going to lose a fee. And that was very interesting to me. Um, so to really see that what we were doing was actually a strategic market share for some firms, um, was really interesting. And then also seeing that we were losing to contractors. Um, so from that, one of those insights is when we looked at our project and the majority of our projects that we do, we actually have smaller scale budgets, like $250,000, $300,000 project budget or, or less, our bulk of our early work. Um, so that might be a commercial interior for a cafe. It might be a public space piece, all of these other things. Um, and we found that we had difficulty getting our larger contractors to come down to that price point. They're not going to get out of bed for a project that's like 250 bucks, thousand dollars. They're going to, they're like, call me when it's a million dollars. You know, that's kind of they, that's how they roll some of them. Um, and then we can't get some contractors to come up to the craft level that we want. So we were ending up in a position where we were acting as owner's rep a lot of the time. Um, and, also pulling things out to work with some of our mill workers. And so we were just kind of classifying some of our interiors as a, frankly, super furniture in some ways um, and kind of um, 
skinning the interior of the space. So we decided we want to pursue and become a design build firm. So that was one of the major goals that we want to finish out for the rest of this year is to get our contractors licensed so that we can move latent design from just an architecture and planning and interiors firm to also offering offering contracting services, but still looking at that small scale project, um, the $250,000 or less project budget that we see as a complete gap in terms of craft, in terms of our projects, and in terms of our time. And so that influenced who we hired. We wanted people with different, like more of a contracting background, but also a design background. And it's, we did our first public space project under that, kind of under that model this summer that was pretty successful. Um, so we're just ready to make that leap now. Awesome. Yeah. Can you readjust your microphone? Yeah, again? yeah, sorry. Yep, no problem. So, so that's, uh, an interesting insight from that process to be able to shift. And now we're going to pivot. We're going to go towards design build. Does that, does that pivot? Do you feel it, it solves both of those problems, both uh, the larger firms doing work for free as mm-hmm. well as competing with the general contractors that are offering a design build package? We hope so. I mean, <laughs> we won't know until we try it out for a yep. couple of years to be frankly, uh, to be frank about that. Um, what we, what we see is with the smaller projects, yes, that's going to solve that. It's going to help us um, be able to offer that additional service in-house. I'm not going to go out and say, hey, kitchens and baths by latent design. That's not how we're going to advertise at all, but it's going to be a value add that helps us close the deal, and we're only going to offer it on projects that we want to work on we're gonna that are still going to be architecture-led design-build. Um, so we're always going to be leading with that face first, and we don't see an end to those types of projects. They, they are just... A majority of that's the lower budget projects that that come in are the ones that work within our network that we we see the majority of our projects. In terms of working losing out on projects to larger firms, we're looking at it as a strategy piece. So how do we start to partner with these larger firms and have um, really serious conversations about market share um, and value and what is appropriate maybe within this field? Um, you know, should a 300-person firm really be competing with a three-person firm for a project? You know, we want to, you know, yes or no. Or how do we actually combine our initiatives? Are we really competitive? No, we're not competitors, so we should be collaborators. How would you How would you have that conversation? Um, that's a great question. The con... This is, this is really interesting. Uh, it is an interesting question because how those conversations have started to happen is really through access. Um, again, it, it becomes an access issue because um, now as a founder of a firm and with the recognition that um, the firm has been able to have, now we're starting to be in the same meetings and conversations with principals and partners in firms. And now that's where I could actually have that conversation because they're not going to answer my email. You know, if it was just, you know, Catherine Darnson who worked, you know, inexperienced architect, it's different now. So it's a different platform that uh, the firm's been able to have. And so now how do we use that platform? How do we use that voice? And how do we also leverage our community design partners and kind of public partners to maybe make, um, maybe make the same suggestion. So I think our, our audience, um, is through our clients and we're starting to grow the audience within the industry. And that wraps up part one of my interview with Catherine Darnstadt. I encourage you to check in next week. We're going to take a deep dive into the battle she faced and the challenges she overcame when she started her design firm. 
And that's a wrap for another show about the business of architecture. To get more resources about how you, as an architect, can run a rewarding business that is both fun, flexible, and profitable, visit businessofarchitecture.com and click the Join button to claim your free account to Business of Architecture Insider. As a member, you'll have access to free tools and resources to help you get more clients, start a new firm, and much more. You'll also get access to my book, Social Media for Architects, where you'll learn how to use internet tools for fun and for profit. Until next week, this has been The Business of Architecture. Views expressed on the show by my guests do not represent those of the host, and I make no representation, promise, guarantee, pledge, warranty, contract, bond, or commitment, except to help you conquer the world. Bump music credit to Ben Folds 5, Do It Anyway.